listen to everything your mentors are telling you and take it to heart. Don't think they're patronizing you. They're not. They really meant what they said. At the time, I thought it was easy for them to tell me that stuff. But if the roles were reversed, would they say the same thing? They meant it. They were sincere about it. And trust me, it's going to turn out okay. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, innovators, or good morning for our friends on the West Coast. David Wright here, and I am your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. I am joined by Kurt Quack. Kurt, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for the opportunity. I look forward to this. It's great. So, Kurt, for those of our listeners who don't know, can you tell them a little bit about your current role? Yes. My name is Kurt Kwok. I'm the chief information officer for a mid-sized healthcare organization based out of Seattle, Washington, called ProLion Surgeons. Our specialty is orthopedic surgeries, and we have roughly 80 or so physical locations throughout the Western Washington region. Like I said, about 2,200 employees total. That's who we are, and that's what I do for them, responsible for all technology and IT. Well, Kurt, I'm going to look forward to learning more about your vision, some of the stuff you guys are working on. But first, I want to get into a little bit of your backstory. And we like to start the episode with one piece of actionable advice you'll look to give our listeners today. This is something we've been reflecting for the last two and a half years, especially if not three years, is what we went through in the pandemic. The social term called the social isolation is real. It's not just a myth. My advice for everyone is make an effort to reach out, not just via Zoom or not just by phone. Try to reach out in person and have physical in-person meetings or connection because that's really where all the energy comes from. And I feel like we've been missing that for the last two, two and a half years. So now it's time for recoup, repair. And I believe that's the best way to kind of get back to how things were prior to the pandemic. I agree wholeheartedly. Human connection. It's what life is all about, really. I mean, for me, that's actually one of the things that concerns me actually about behavioral health via telehealth, right? I think that it's so crucial and important, right? Don't get me wrong. I think there's a great application for it. And 
I think that eyeball to eyeball, face to face interaction, particularly when you're dealing with substance use disorders or things of that nature, it's kind of important. But I digress. So, Kurt, let's get into a little bit about how did you start out and how did you get to be the CIO of a large healthcare organization? Well, it was a lot of work. There was some luck involved, obviously. And I'm just counting my blessings every day for where I am today and what I get to do today. So my life was always around technology. I graduated from the University of Washington, Go Huskies, way back when in mechanical engineering, thinking I was going to be an engineer for life. And I somehow got into the telecommunications industry right out of school and learned what makes telecommunication work. And that quickly went to the wireless communication. And your companies like T-Mobile today, that's where I was before T-Mobile even existed, building the right. foundation of what we use today on our mobile phones for communication and really our day-to-day -day lives. I'm very grateful I had a chance to be part of the very initial phases of that process. And after about 10 years of that, there was a change, I would say, career change. And then I got into healthcare at that point. So about midpoint in my career. And I also completed my executive MBA at the UW at the same time. So I was yearning for growth and yearning for leadership. And I got into healthcare and I almost immediately got into healthcare IT leadership once I started that journey with Providence Health and Services way back when. And after about a year or so, I got escalated or promoted into the healthcare CIO role. And I've been kind of doing that for the last 14 plus years. And I could not wow. ask for anything more. Just a phenomenal industry. If there are listeners out there who are contemplating changing industries, I would recommend healthcare because it's no longer about shareholders or revenues or net profits. It's about what can we do as technologists to enable better care for people? How do we allow people to live better, healthy lives? I know that's a lot through our physicians and nurses and clinical staff, but everything we do touches what they do and in turn what they do for the patients. So we're all connected in that way. And when your objective is to touch someone's life or help somebody who is at their most vulnerable state, perspectives change pretty dramatically. It's just phenomenal and just changes you as a person. So I feel grateful to be in this world today. Wow. Yeah, it's great that you're so clear about personal kind of vision and mission for why that you work in healthcare. My mom, as some of our listeners know, is the president and CEO of a behavioral health nonprofit in New Jersey called the Center for Great Expectations. And she was the one who showed me that, you know, helping the most vulnerable folks in our population just one life at a time, when you're helping particularly a mother of a child you have the opportunity, especially if you're providing a continuum of care, to impact generations to come. It can be very significant. If I could squeeze in one more comment about that, the quality of care you provide to a patient and also the perception of the care received by the patient is a very thin and fragile line. If you don't consistently go above and beyond to care for the other side, that thin line will be disrupted and it just turns really bad. So it's hard. It's extremely hard. And like you said, behavioral health is very, very difficult. And God bless those folks who work in that arena. But yeah, it's just a thin layer that we're always trying to protect every single day. Great comment. 
Thanks for that, Kurt. I want to ask, it's a bit of a philosophical question, and you can take a personal route or a professional route, but what's one of the most important things that you've learned in your life, kind of along your journey as an executive, and what was life like before learning it and after learning it? Well, I got to be honest with you, before this aha moment, which was a few years back, I did think the world revolved around me. I was doing things for myself. I was doing things for myself and my family. I was doing things because I felt I needed to do that. That was my younger days, very careless days, very little reflection. To be honest with you, a little bit on the selfish side and self-centered side of things. But I hit an aha moment. There was a, either a set of incidents or, or something somebody said where I felt very small at that moment. And I realized I'm just a small dot in a huge universe. That's a very humbling moment. And mm. it's no longer about you. You're just dot at the end of the day. So how do you, as a small dot, make the most impact you can? You know, when you're young and you feel like you're the center of the universe, you could do anything. You could conquer anything. It's this confidence you have. But it's also blind confidence, at least from my perspective. You could actually do a lot of damage with that. But if you kind of self-reflect and humble yourself a bit, you could still make significant impacts. But it's not about you anymore. Your question always is, what can I do for you? What can I do to serve you? What can I do for you, Mr. and Mrs. Patient, doctor, Mr. and Mrs. Nurse? Because if they don't provide that feedback, what I do is insignificant. Right. But if I do provide something that will make an impact on them so that they could do better jobs outward, and then it means quite a bit. So, yes, for a philosophical answer, there's that's my philosophical answer to that question. But yeah, it was going from a more centered, self centered world to now more humbling outward perspective self. It's funny that you mentioned that. I feel like that's a rite of passage for many people, or rather, hopefully people kind of arrive at that point. There's actually a book that I've mentioned before on the podcast by Arthur C. Brooks, and he talks about the striver's curse. As an entrepreneur, I was guilty of the same thing, that kind of selfish, self-seeking. Now, I convinced myself that it was very noble because I'm doing it for my family, right? But At the same time, when I'm in that place, I'm being driven by fear of losing what I have or not getting what I think I need. I had a similar kind of catalyst moment where I realized like, that's not what it was all about. When I really started, and I love that you mentioned humility, right? Because that's where it starts. Who the hell am I, right? I mean, I am just a tiny cog and I have a very fluid spirituality, if you will. But nowadays, my mantra when I wake up is just kind of show me what the next right thing to do. And I obviously have to put one foot in front of the other. But living life that way has just been really fulfilling. Because when you're coming from a place of service, it's just so, so much more fulfilling. A book that I read that really amplified this and really affirmed it for me a book called Homo Deus. The author is Yuval Habari. And it really talks about who we are as humans on this very fragile earth. How much impact us humans have on this fragile 
planet Earth. The term Homo Deus is like human God. When you kind of take the traditional concept and definition of God for those believers, and of course, you know, I respect those non-believers as well, what we do today here on this Earth, you talk about the environment. You talk about extinction of certain species of animals. And even within the human population, the atrocities you hear, it's what we are doing as humans on this world. And we have to have responsibility over our actions. It was a great read that actually affirmed like where I was in that gray area of, Mike, I'm transitioning from this point to that point. And the thought of that small dot, how myself, alone is insignificant in this world compared to what's in front of us, really just hit me. I would highly recommend that book to a lot of folks if they're kind of in that phase that I was, because it would really just hit you really hard. I'm going to add it to my book list. And actually, that's one of the things that I was going to ask you anyways. I might ask you if you have one more in your back pocket, but what about a moment over the course of your career that you had a significant challenge or a failure, if you will, that you really took some great learnings from? Is there a moment that stands out in your mind or a project or anything of that nature? Well, the thing that comes right to my mind is when I made the jump from telecommunications industry to the healthcare industry many, many years ago, 14, 15 years ago, that wasn't by choice. It was one of those mutual separation deals because there was a big acquisition. They gave me a choice to stay with these caveats, or we could mutually decide to separate. And the terms of staying wasn't very favorable to me. So I chose the other end. And when the separation occurred, yeah, there was a moment of panic. There was a moment of self-doubt. And yes, the world did feel like it was crumbled. I had a young daughter at the time, five years old, and I had a new baby coming. I was still in the middle of finishing up my MBA at the time, and now I didn't have a job. I mean, all that kind of hit you all at one time, and it was a moment of panic. I had mentors I spoke with regularly, and I didn't hear what they were telling me because it was such a panic and chaotic time for me. But I remember the words that threw at me at the time. Words like patience, concept of when you're in the trout, the next phase is the peak. Hard to embrace that when you're in a panic mode or a chaotic moment. You know, one of them actually told me very calmly, why don't you think about what the next opportunity is? Why panic about what you just lost? Why don't you look Mm. forward to what's coming next? Easier said than done at that moment. And then one of them gave me a real great advice, which was, one moment at a time or one step at a time. You have a family, you have school, and you know you're going to find some. And, you know, they give you positives like you're talented, you have a great background, you have a lot to offer to an organization. You know, those words that give you to kind of help your morale, right? Again, just over your head at the time. But when I look back, I am so grateful for those friends and mentors that provided those things. And whether I felt it or not directly, I think I did retain a lot of that. And then right right now, when I meet someone younger who may be going through something similar, I provide the exact same thing, except with a little bit of empathy because I was there before. So that was a tough moment. But man, that was such a long time ago. And 
I'm grateful for having gone through that moment because I am better for it. Those moments of self-doubt are tricky. And before I made the jump into entrepreneurship between 2017 and 2018, because my old employer was kind of rewriting the rules of the game and I wish them all well, but I made the jump and a lot of self-doubt, a lot of imposter syndrome too. Even as we experienced success, I felt like I was going to be found out. It took a lot of work, a lot of mentor. I love that you mentioned mentors too, because it takes sometimes somebody else holding up that mirror who has stepped through that in order to really give you that perspective or help you learn how to arrive at that perspective, kind of as you alluded to. Now that I'm there, I think it's important, like you said, to share that with others. And in addition to that, it's not like that fear or that, anger or whatever the emotion that comes up might be doesn't arrive anymore because it does right for me it's of course i'm feeling worked up right now this project that i had just worked on for a year the client did something really sketchy and now we lost the client or whatever it might be you know of course i'm worked up but now what am i going to do i'm going to walk through this on to the other side and recognize that maybe it wasn't meant to be because it goes back to what you said before, like, I have no idea. And it, it reminds me of my favorite Tao parable about the Tao farmer, you know, where he has these horses on his farm and they run away and people say, oh, that's so awful. But then the next day, the horses come back with three more horses. So now he has oh. double the horses he started with. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. The next day, the wild horses, the son is trying to tame, they break his leg. And the town people are like, oh my God, this misfortune. And then the following day, the army comes to recruit people for the war and they can't take his son because his leg's broken. And it's just, you know, life happens and there's no way to tell if something is good or bad. It's just how I react to it. That's right. That's awesome. Appreciate you kind of reminding me of that. Before we get into your current role and your visit for uh, ProLiance, favorite book, you mentioned a great one, but favorite book either that you're reading right now or all time? There is a book, all time, I won't bore anyone with that, but the book that I'm currently working on is called Everyday Resilience by Dr. Gail Gazelle. It talks about what we started the meeting with, social connection as human species. Our species our function as a social animal, set of social animals. And without that connection, social connection, it's very hard for us to function. And our theme is resilience here this year because we're coming off of two and a half years of pandemic, hybrid environment. And without this resilience, we're going to struggle to transform ourselves. We throw things a lot like, you know, one of the things that is talked about in this book is called realistic expectations. You know, in technology and IT, there's a lot of folks, whether they admit to or not, they think they have the answers to everything when it comes to technology. So that is their expectation. But how far is that from the actual reality? So the famous saying that we always talk about internal here is, don't be mad at someone for not meeting your expectation. Be mad at yourself for having a false expectation or unrealistic mm -hmm. expectation to begin with. Right. And how do you kind of foresee that? And how do you kind of go beyond your expectation and forecast 
these unforeseen things so you could actually build a more realistic expectation than what you already have. So those are a lot of things of what Ms. Gazelle talks about. There's a few more chapters I'm getting to, and I use the learnings from this book to a mentor of my team and my leadership under me so that we could do similar things as a group. So again, I recommend it because it's not just about work, but about yourself, your reflection on yourself, and also just emphasizing the fact that as human beings, we have to be social, we have to be connected, and we have to work as a connected social community. Yeah, expectations too. It's such an interesting thing. I try, you have to have a realistic expectation, if you will, of what the goal is and things of that nature. But by and large, as a rule, I try not to have expectations because it goes back for me to control, right? Like I can control doing my best, showing up to a situation, asking for help. Like I can control all of that, but I can't control the outcome. So to have an expectation of that outcome and then not have it happen, I'm kind of setting myself up for whatever that feeling is that comes from that. As often as I can, and realistically, right, too, as I can, I try not to have expectations. But I'm excited to check out that book. So Kurt, let's talk about your current role. So what is your vision for IT and digital as it's derived from the overarching mission of the organization itself? Our organization is unique in that it's a physician-owned, so they're personally accountable and personally responsible, each of them, for the success of this organization. They earn as much as the organization succeeds, and they also lose as much as organization suffers. So we are all in a unique environment where it's no longer working for a corporation with white ivory towers with a lot of, in certain areas, politics. We actually have direct access to these folks who earned their places and who are working their butts off to sustain the lives of not only themselves, but employees here of ProLiance Surgeon. And that came clear to me. So we try to respect that. We try to work with that. And we try to make everything we do every day as individuals count toward that. So no more of this, hey, we'll do our best effort. That statement turns into we have to do it. It's no longer try and then if it doesn't work, oh, well. You have to do it because they're actually spending their own personal money to fund our project. As an example, if you make a mistake here, I've been in organizations where people try to cover up your mistake or they stand behind their boss and ask the boss to kind of stand in front of the mistake. And if you make a mistake, you're the only one that could fix the mistake. I learned this very quickly in my first month or so when there was a cybersecurity event that occurred and I was sitting in the office with my COO and our CEO at the time, and uh, we were talking about the incident, I was kind of looking at the CEO for guidance, right? And then he kind of looked back at me and said, Kurt, what are you going to do to help fix this for us? I'm like, wait a minute, I always look for my boss for answers, but in this place, I'm it. And that was at the beginning of this nine-year journey here at ProLine Surgeons. I love that. I do the same thing with my staff today. Don't come to me for the mistake you made or don't come to me with that issue. You're here to help fix the issue. And frankly, you're the only one that could fix it. I could help you and support you along the way, but you have to take responsibility and fix that issue. 
it's just a thought process. But when you have that level of ownership and conviction toward resolution, it's very powerful. I think that's why our culture is so unique and so strong. And I've been with big organizations like the prop that I talked about. I mean, there's 75,000 employees there and it's massive. And I've been with the startup, with the state of Washington, building a platform for folks to purchase you know, insurance plans through the Obama plan. And I was IT employee number one, but this is the only organization that I know, at least in my career, that allows you to be who you are and you have to be personally responsible for what you do on a daily basis because there's nobody else that's going to step in for you. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of responsibility and it's not for everyone. But if you could thrive in here, it's going to be one of the best jobs you're going to have. I'm not promoting for ProLions, David. Just don't get me wrong, but just love being here and what we do here today. Yeah, it is unique. And just so I'm clear, because I have run across a few physician-led organizations. There's a radiology imaging center company that I'm friends with. The CIO was lived in Washington for quite a while. So do all the physicians have equity in the organization or... They're considered shareholders, and you have to meet certain criteria before they become official shareholders. But the 220 or so physicians we have are all considered shareholders of this organization. If you kind of see it negatively, you could say you have 220 bosses. But if you kind of take a positive step toward it, then you, you could say you have 220 people who are personally accountable for this organization's success, which is a very powerful thing to say. Yeah. And I think I'm excited to get into some of the initiatives that you guys are focused on right now. And I think it is unique when you have these physician owners who are trying to create an empathetic experience and solve for some of their own challenges, right? Like that we're seeing in healthcare in general with lack of bandwidth, attrition. So interested to learn a little bit more about maybe some of the key initiatives that you guys are focused on right now. Just from a high-level organizational perspective, although it's a great culture and great organization, the threats are all around us. Threats from hospitals wanting some of our best physicians as part of their staff. There might be some physicians who may not want to even be part of a medium-sized organization and maybe think about going private, him or herself, right? And of course, struggles with the staffing at the clinical level, the nurses, the medical assistants and physician assistants, they're really, really hard to come by. And once you lose one, it has a huge impact on their day-to-day operations. So our focus is building and rebuilding our culture to help retain key talents across the board, including physicians. So we have to think about benefits. We have to think about the reason why they're here and also meaning behind the work that they do and help define those as part of our vision, mission, and core values here at ProLiance. So that's one of the core internal objectives we have here this year. The other things that are outside of that would be, how do we increase our footprint to grow from the 2,200 employee organization? And what is that sweet spot? Where do we need to be to continue to succeed and sustain this private organizational status that we have? independence, right? We're looking for business development and business growth in multiple ways. So things like, do we consider other specialties? How do we improve our benefits to attract other physicians or private practices and also retain our key talents, right? So that's another one. And on the technology end, 
underneath a lot of that, our primary focus has always been strengthen our cybersecurity positioning for this organization at the enterprise wide. So we've done a lot of great things with endpoint protection and perimeter security. But now we want to take that next step and see what the AI could do more for us proactively, proactively and more in a penetrating way in the internet. So if they even come close, we capture it and we eliminate it. So they can't even get to the front door type. So more advanced threat detection is one of the things that we'll look into this year. Email security is another area that we want to strengthen because we know 90 to 95% of all malware and ransomware and all these attacks happen over email by someone clicking on something or accidentally opening something that looks very legitimate or Mm -hmm. getting an email from your boss that looks very legitimate. So legitimate, the boss even says, did I really send that? And it's very clever, right? So we're looking at an email security process, data loss prevention strategy for this year around that. And then other more traditional things, uh, we're looking to expand on our cloud infrastructure a little bit more. So reduce our in-house expenses and also rely on the experts a little more on some of the more complex construction of our infrastructure. So we're trying to partner with some third parties on that. And of course, IT talent is very important and hard to come by here in Seattle, Washington, because even though Microsoft and Amazon are laying off droves of people, they are keeping their key technology talent and they will continue to go after key technology talent. So what do we need to do to retain our key technology talent, reward them for their good work and provide the culture best aligned with their personal goals and professional goals? So... Those are some of the key things that that we're trying to kick off this year. It's already February, and I'm afraid we're about a month behind because January just flew by so fast. I hear that. I hear that. We had my second daughter at the end of November. I think, as I told you, we had the event in December and January was just like, yeah. So we're in a similar boat. But I love what you guys are doing with you know the mission and the values of the organization, kind of reassessing that. And another thing that an expert that we work with on that sort of stuff says is, then it trickles down also to the behaviors. What are the behaviors that roll up to those core beliefs or tenants, if you will? And the importance of that, obviously, or not obviously, when it comes to retaining and attracting talent is huge. And the way that we came in contact with this expert that we work a lot with was per all the healthcare organizations that are looking at consumer experience right now, right? And how do we improve patient experience or consumer experience? It starts with the culture of the folks that are supporting those consumers. And what is the culture that's kind of trickling down from the top of the org- top down? So because when you look at organizations like JetBlue or Delta or Amex. It's like they really spend a lot of time on that stuff. It's amazing that you guys are taking the time to do that because it's something that we're encouraging right now quite a bit. We've kind of talked about some of the biggest challenges that or some of the challenges that you guys are facing right now. Any other challenges you guys are facing as an organization? Well, I do wonder what the lasting impact of the pandemic as a whole will be, not only Mm -hmm. for our organization, but healthcare in general. And that we're still kind of going back and forth on this hybrid work model. I've seen organizations make a stance and then they retract and they try to get back to it. 
And then I've seen organizations that are not doing anything at this time, just letting it kind of happen organically and see what works and what not. We haven't really decided fully how we want to be because there are big pluses, as you may already know, allowing employees the flexibility of working from home as well as in the office. Now, me as a traditionalist who didn't miss a day of work until I got shut down back in 2020 and I was forced to be at home for a length of time, it was frustrating because that social isolation was real for me. But I'm able to do with my team, I just couldn't do over Zoom or it wasn't very dynamic as I wanted it to be. When I do come in like today, I do come in most days today but I don't mandate that to the employees. And when I do see an employee come by, it is so happy. It's a happy time for us to see each other, say hi. Someone actually tell me what's going on in their lives. If there is a issue, we kind of talk through it and we all come out very happy and excited about what the next steps are. And I think a lot of those yeah. things are missing in this hybrid yeah. model. And because for one, we were not a hybrid model to begin with. And, you know, I, right. I know firms who are saying, oh, we're fine. But yeah, you guys were hybrid to begin with. And a lot of you guys work from homes before the pandemic. So you can't really say that. And at the same time, a lot of our clinical staff can't work from home. They have to be in the clinics. They have to be there for the patients. They have to be there for the doctors. And doctors can't do orthopedics over the phone or telemedicine. It's orthopedics. I mean, just imagine trying, if you had an Achilles tear, but you didn't know that. You have this throbbing pain in your Achilles and try to explain that to a doctor over the phone or telemedicine. You do know if you have a knee issue, that pain could be felt in your Achilles too. Or if you have a nerve issue on your left knee, you could feel that on your right knee. So how would you actually describe that to your orthopedic surgeon and expect good results? You need to come in so they could actually do their magic take scans and make it absolutely certain before anything is recommended, right? So we got to respect that as an organization. And I'm not going to say anything over the air or anything in public, but I do miss the days where we were all here and we were mingling technology, collaboration-wise, partnership-wise. And there's also a lot of venting and commiseration that's also missing today. They used to call that water cooler before. When we had the water coolers, now it's a little different. Right. I know these people are missing those moments where you could pull somebody aside, go outside, do a walk, and just commiserate or vent a little bit. It makes them feel much better. Can't do that over Zoom. You can't do that over phone. In fact, they probably decide not to do it if Zoom yeah. was the only option. So those are the things that concern me, and I wish that we could be better in that. Yeah, I can really appreciate that. It resonates with me. I mean, we're a company that grew significantly during COVID. So we have a fairly significant remote workforce. At the same time, for me personally, in particular, I really try to demark my personal life and my professional life to ensure that I'm present in each of them. And when I did, there was a time when... And I live in Brooklyn. We're living in a one bedroom at the time. So I did try to work from home for like a bit, but we went back into our headquarters actually shortly after that because it just wasn't, was too intermingled. And I wasn't doing either thing justice, like personal family life and the business life. They just were like this and I would get calls later and this and that. So 
I was meeting with a guys from Juniper Networks yesterday, and one guy made a comment. He was late to the meeting by about two minutes. Of course, he apologized profusely, saying the previous meeting ran late, and he made a side comment like, even in high school, they gave us five minutes between classes. In the Zoom world, there's nothing. And we're chronically late to every single meeting because of that. I thought that was an interesting comment he made because he's right. Yeah, it's true. You'd laugh if you looked at my schedule today because it was literally like, and I was four minutes late for our recording for that exact reason. So what about, Kurt, some of the best practices that you and your team follow? Any tips that you might lend? This is especially important now, which is don't hold back. Don't be passive. You gotta be more assertive in what you say and what you do. You gotta have more purpose and you gotta demonstrate it more because people are not seeing what you do on a day-to-day basis, right? So how do you demonstrate it? So that is one of the best practices that we're practicing. We also talk about concepts of under-functioning and over-functioning. They're not bad or good things. But if you do too much of one or the other, it could be bad. Things like how people over-functioning, maybe you see someone struggling, so you go in and kind of take over without telling that person. You're helping them, you think, but you're kind of taking it over. Or maybe an under-functioning is when you kind of wait for somebody to tell you what to do. You have that everywhere. There's a number of over-functioning and under-functioning that needs to be balanced, especially now because you don't see everybody every day. And under the concepts of resilience, you know, we have this tendency to kind of see what's in front of us and respond and react to that, whether it's email, whether it's messaging, or whether it's a project in front of us. And we, you know, the old concept of tip of the iceberg, right? That right there is just the tip of the iceberg. But what's okay. underneath the water that we're not seeing? How it got there, context, all the work that took to even get it to that point that we either don't see or ignore. So how do you make an effort to see the entire iceberg in and out of the water? Best practices, those are some of the key best practices that I'm enforcing and I'm trying to repeat every time we meet. And then some of the concepts that we talked about earlier, the expectation setting, your expectation versus what the reality is. And how do you close the gap between the two? Not easy, especially, You know, like you stated, David, a lot of folks' personal lives are interweaved with the professional lives. And it's very difficult in the personal lives too. And your expectation with your spouse, your kids, but what's the reality? And when that becomes blurry, it becomes dangerous. So like you said, how do you separate them out? But kind of treat both the same way. So I would say that's another best practice. And we have a saying here at ProLiance, which is learn something new every day because we're unique. There's no other organization like ours. There might be similar models, but really we're very unique. So learn something new that we didn't know about yesterday and try to teach others that learning. So it's like learn and then teach, learn and then teach. So that's another best practice we try to employ every day. Love it. One question I'd have for you, any innovative technologies that you're looking at to support the business vision of the organization that you're either implementing right now or that are maybe on the roadmap for the future? It's not innovative because it's been around, but we are really heavy into data and analytics today. And we are providing decision-making or decision-makeable information to the key decision-makers. 
which is uh-huh. uh, making a huge difference. So what it has done is reduce the rework. It reduced unnecessary analysis, unnecessarily as in duplicate analysis. And it allows information at their fingertips when they need to confirm things. So that is one thing that we got into pretty heavily last year, and we're expanding into this year. And then, again, this is not new, but at least for us, it is new. For the first time, we are looking at standing up a virtual server in a cloud environment. We always had an on-prem. We always had control over it, and we had full visibility and access to it. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a chance and allow the cloud provider to provide that same service and then challenge our resources and engineers to do more strategic work instead of focusing on or worrying about the hardware failure, power consumption. Can we think about how we want to leverage the new infrastructure to better our organization? What other technologies can you bolt onto it for automation, performance improvements, and additional analytics? Not innovative because it's been around, but innovative for us today. Well, it is. And I would say in healthcare in general, for sure, which kind of rolls into one of our second to last question. Where do you see the healthcare industry going in the future? And what do you think will be some of the biggest changes as time passes? Oh, boy, this is going to be very subjective. So please don't hold me to this. But what I would love to see, and I could see glimpses of this, is a very consumer revolving healthcare industry. Before it was very, or even today, it's very hospital facilities and systems and insurance company revolving healthcare. How do we get to the more consumer-based healthcare that's better in quality, more accessible to patients, and of course, less cost, right? I think President Obama started that a long time ago, but even prior to that, a lot of Democratic parties talked about it. And we have small foundations of that still existing. How do we get there? A lot of my colleagues who are not in healthcare actually goes, Kurt, in financial, look how automated they are. Why is healthcare still so manual? How about the retail? Look what Amazon's doing. Amazon's delivering crap to your door. Why? Now they're going to do prescriptions too. Prescriptions, services, I mean, you name it. You buy a barbecue and they'll deliver to your front door from Amazon. Like tomorrow, right. or healthcare, you still have to identify your doctor. You have to make sure you have insurance or a payment process. You have to go through the diagnostic process. And the physicians are always practicing medicine. It's not really fully resolving your issues. You know, medication is another big challenge. And, you know, I blame the pharma industry for a lot of that. But again, how do we become more patient-centric? healthcare in the future. So I would say that's an aspiration, but we could definitely get there. I saw this McKinsey report that was kind of showing the classic setup of a health system where it's their inpatient facilities, physicians' offices, and then kind of the future going from all the ambulatory surge, virtual care, retail clinics. I agree that is the future really of healthcare, or I mean, at least a part of it. We're kind of ditching this hierarchical relationship between the physician and the patient. And just like every other industry, right, the consumer is starting to drive the experience as opposed to the other way around. So Kurt, last question would be, if you could go back five or 10 years in time, 
what advice would you give your younger self? Five to 10 years ago doesn't feel that far. You could do 15, 20 years ago. Okay, I'm going to go back to 15 and a half years ago when I was in that chaotic state. I might go back and tell that young guy, listen to everything your mentors are telling you and take it to heart. Don't treat those like BS or don't think they're patronizing you. They're not. They really meant what they said. I'm still friends with a lot of them today. But back then, you know, I necessarily didn't want to hear from them because they still had jobs and I didn't. At the time, I thought it was easy for them to tell me that stuff. But if the roles were reversed, would they say the same thing? I would just say they meant it. They were sincere about it. And trust me, it's going to turn out okay. And I would just stand there until I get an acknowledgement, a sincere acknowledgement from myself. I love that. Kurt, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for being with us today. I had a lot of fun, David. Thanks for your great questions. And it was a great time. So thank you as well. Yeah, my pleasure. And to our listeners, thanks for tuning in. We will catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.